Now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on the mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them. He said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So when, when I was in high school, I, I played water polo all four years. And there was a lot of turnover, so I had three different coaches over those four years. And one of the things when you're in a position like that, you get to start to see the priorities of the different coaches and how they handle things. So my freshman year, or my, my first coach, he was very passionate. He was, he was sort of the, the typical inspirational leader where he'd give the big speech and get us all whipped up into a frenzy. And so we learned very early, if we were going to sort of respond, if we were going to adopt what he valued, the way that we were going to show him that was by us being passionate. He brought the inspiration, he brought that energy, and we wanted him to see that we were bringing that energy and that passion as well. And then my freshman year, we had a new coach. Uh, I'm sorry, my sophomore year, we had a new coach. Um, and he was very different. He, he wasn't the inspirational rah-rah leader. Um, he, was, he was quieter, but he was quietly intense. But it was funny because whereas we, with our freshman year coach, we, we would just kind of sit back and listen to him give us this big speech. For the pregame speech with the second coach, we had to sort of lean in. We're like, is he talking right now? But he was just, he was very intense and he would get frustrated with us. And, and the way that we would show him that we were on board, the way that we would adopt his values was by being very, very focused. It wasn't necessarily about this, this deep, enthusiastic energy. It was just by showing him we are very focused on what's before us. And then my third coach, my, fr my uh, junior and senior year, we had a new coach and he wasn't like either of the others. He, he wasn't the raw, raw guy. And he wasn't terribly intense. He was more of a teacher. He was very strategic. He was very cerebral. So he would have these game plans and you know, get out the chart with the dry erase marker and show us all the different plays. So if we were going to show him we were on board, if we were going to adopt his values, the main way that we would do that is by making smart plays while we were up there and showing him that we were thinking things through, that we weren't making dumb mistakes, that we had a strategy in mind with everything that we did. And it was interesting because even going through that and thinking back on it, we all sort of got into the habit of discerning, all right, we've got a new coach, what's important to him? What's going to be valuable and how are we going to respond to that? I feel like even today, you know, I've had different job changes and different bosses and even different coaches for my kids' sports teams. And I've got into the habit of looking for this to say, all right, if, if you're following somebody's lead then you got to figure out what's important to them. And in order to fall in line, you've got to figure out what, what do I do? What, what virtues do I uphold to show them that I'm on board with what they're trying to accomplish? Now, here's what we're going to do for the next couple of months. The next couple of months, we're going to be asking the question, 
what would our lives look like if we lived as if Jesus was the king? If we lived as if he had the agenda and he was the one setting the agenda and we were looking to respond, what would our lives look like? What would our church look like? What would our priorities look like? What would we say is important to us in light of what's important to him? And the way that we're going to do that is by going through what's often talked about as Jesus' most famous sermon. We're going to walk through what's called the Sermon on the Mount. We're going to start today. We're going to be in this for the next couple months. We're going to be all the way through the summer. We're going to be walking through this this extended passage, which is Matthew's chapters 5, 6, and 7. This is Jesus' most famous sermon, and what theologians have sometimes called this, they said this is sort of a kingdom manifesto. In other words, what the Sermon on the Mount is, is Jesus saying, if I am the king, here's what life looks like. Here's a picture of how people are responding to one another and what people are valuing if Jesus is the king. And we're intentionally using this king language and and titling the series, Who is Your King? And we even just sang about this in the last song that we sang, because that's core to what Jesus is talking about, not only in this passage, but all throughout the Gospels. In fact, there's a quick summary to Jesus' entire message, a couple of verses before chapter 5. In chapter 4 of Matthew, verse 23, I'll read it for you. It says, Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news, or gospel, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness among the people. We just spent four weeks talking about what is the gospel, what is the good news. And here in this passage, it says that when Jesus proclaimed the good news, it was the good news of the kingdom. Now, let's talk about this for a minute, because if you've been around churches for a while, you're like, all right, I know kingdom is one of those buzzwords. I know it's one of those things we talk about, but it's not necessarily super clear what we're talking about. When we talk about the kingdom, are are we talking about heaven? Are we talking about the church? Are we talking about salvation? Like, what what is meant by the kingdom? And and I'll try to to kind of describe it in, in, in terms that we can get our minds around. But, but when we talk about this whole idea of the kingdom, theologians have typically talked about the kingdom of God as something that is already and not yet. As something that is here right now, but we're still waiting for its final fulfillment. And in order to think about it, just think about it this way. Um, and I promise what I'm about to ask you is not a trick question. The obvious answer is going to be the right answer. What does every kingdom need? A king! You guys got every kingdom needs a king. So when Jesus showed up on the scene as the king of the kingdom of God, the kingdom was here because the king was here. And we could listen to him and we could respond to him and say, all right, this is what he values and this is what he says is important and here's what he's telling us about God. We could respond to the king and in that sense, the kingdom was showing up because the kingdom is put on display anywhere that men and women are treating Jesus as if he's the king. But we're still waiting for the time when Jesus will return and establish the final manifestation of that kingdom. It's here right now. And the greatest place that it should be showing up is in the church of Jesus Christ. That we would say, in this realm, Jesus is in charge. In this realm, Jesus is our king. Out there, there's any number of idols and, and other priorities that people have. But in here, this is where Jesus is the king. And therefore, his kingdom shows up. The Sermon on the Mount 
is where Jesus gives us a picture of what life is like under King Jesus. Now, now a couple more things about this, because I'll try, I'll, I'll introduce the whole concept and then we'll get into the passage for today, which you already heard read in the video that we went through. All right, the, the Sermon on the Mount. You might say, all right, well, why is this called the Sermon on the Mount? I'm glad that you asked. We'll look at Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. It says, now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him and he began to teach them. So, all right, straightforward. The reason this is the Sermon on the Mount is because Jesus preached it from a mountain. And you might say, now, wait a second. It says that there were crowds, but then it says that he taught this to his disciples. So does that mean Jesus is teaching and there's just like 12 guys listening to this? And the end of the Sermon on the Mount tells us, no, that's not actually what went on. Right after Jesus finishes the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 7, verse 28 says, when Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching. So Jesus is focusing this in on his disciples, but the crowds are all listening to it, and they end up in amazement once it's done. Now, now just another note on this, because you might say, all right, the Sermon on the Mount, all right, fine. So it's called Sermon on the Mount because he, he said it from a mountain. I just want to pause this. There's a specific reason why Jesus gave this message from a mountain and why Matthew highlights that it happened on a mountain. It's because this represents something that, that, that is big for what Jesus is doing at this time. And what he's doing is he is sort of recapping and reliving the life and the history of the nation of Israel in the Old Testament. Just think that this sermon comes very early in the book of Matthew. Matthew has 28 chapters. This starts in chapter 5, so this is early on. And chapters 1 and 2 are really just about Jesus' birth. So in chapter 3, the first thing that we see from Jesus in his adult life is he gets baptized. He gets baptized in water. This should have reminded every Jewish person reading this of something that happened in the life of Israel in the Old Testament because they had a very significant water experience as well. Know what I'm talking about? The parting of the Red Sea. In fact, in the book of 1 Corinthians, the Apostle Paul refers to them walking through the Red Sea as a sort of baptism. So Jesus has his baptism paralleling the nation of Israel. Then Jesus goes into the wilderness, you know, for how many days? 40 days. After the Israelites passed through the Red Sea, how many years were they in the wilderness? 40 years. This is not an accident. This is very intentional. Jesus goes into the wilderness for 40 days and he's tempted. By the way, when Israel was in the wilderness for 40 years, how did they do with their temptations? Yeah, not so good. Jesus goes into the wilderness for 40 days. He's tempted by the devil and he succeeds where Israel failed. Then when Jesus comes back, he goes up on a mountain to tell the people what God says. If you know about the nation of Israel, who went up on a mountain and came back down with what God said? Moses did. This is all very purposeful. Jesus is claiming, even by the actions that he's doing, he's making a big claim. He's not setting himself up as just another teacher of the law. He's setting himself up as the new Moses, as the new nation of Israel. So when he's speaking this, he is speaking what he's claiming to be the very message of God. And the way that he starts it off is he starts off with what we typically call the Beatitudes. And that's what you heard read earlier, all, all the statements about blessed is this person because this is what will happen to them. And the reason they're called Beatitudes is because the Latin word for blessing, it translates loosely to the whole idea of Beatitudes. So that's why they're called that. Um, the Beatitudes are a series of statements where Jesus lays out what he sees as the virtues of people that follow him. 
of the desired characteristics, the, the desired qualities of people who follow him. And what we're going to see as we walk through these is we're going to see that the Beatitudes make us choose between two kingdoms. As we walk through these eight statements that Jesus makes about who is blessed, what we're going to see is that Jesus is calling us. By, By living in light of the things that Jesus says are important, we will, by default, end up rejecting the qualities that are considered important in the right here and now. We will end up deferring gratification. We'll end up saying, all right, there's a certain list of qualities that get you ahead in our culture, but Jesus has different priorities. And by adopting his priorities, I say no to the things that would get me ahead in the here and now. Jesus is saying, who's going to be your king? If I'm going to be your king, there is going to be great reward, but that great reward isn't going to come immediately, and it's not going to come through the things that our culture says are most important. Now, before getting into the Beatitudes, and I'm going to kind of categorize them for us, but but I just want to point out a couple things. Um, So there are these eight statements that Jesus makes, and some of you are probably familiar with, with some of these, you know, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are the meek, blessed are the peacemakers. Um, What I want to say in starting off is these are meant to be seen as a unit. These aren't just eight isolated statements that we should take and look at. These are meant to all go together. They they interact together. And one of the reasons why you can see that they interact together is because of how they begin and end. In fact, right up here, so I've got the first beatitude and the last beatitude. Now look at them. Verse 3, the first beatitude is, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The final beatitude, blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You notice that? The same reward in both of them. And all the in-between rewards are are kind of reiterations of this. They'll be called the children of God. They will see God. They'll, They'll receive mercy. But he bookends it with this idea of, all right, the kingdom belongs to those who adopt these virtues. In other words, if you want to live as if Jesus is your king, here's what it looks like. These are all a unit. And so because of that, instead of just kind of going through one by one and highlighting each, I'm going to sort of highlight categories that I think that they bring out. We, we will touch on each one, but we'll talk about the big picture of what the Beatitudes are telling us about life in the kingdom of God. And the first thing that we'll look at, we're, we'll, we'll look at a couple of these, we're going to see that if we adopt the kingdom virtues... They will lead us to internal discomfort. So I'll just couch you with this. If you walked in and you were like, the Beatitudes, there's these great positive statements. I mean, for heaven's sake, they begin with the word blessed. I'm here to make the Beatitudes depressing again. <laughs> and I mean that joking. These aren't depressing statements. But what you're going to see is this is not a flowery teaching from Jesus. This is not puppy dogs and ice cream. This is hard, convicting stuff that leads us to the realization that we can't serve two masters. And if we're going to adopt what Jesus says is important, it's going to cause us to reject what's considered important in the here and now, and it's going to lead us to internal discomfort. And you see that right away. So verse 3 is the first beatitude. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, now just a quick word on, uh, on the whole idea of blessed. Um, because th- this is a core word for the whole thing, for, for the whole Beatitudes, the whole idea of what does he mean by blessed? And I think to, to sum it up, what he's saying is that the person who lives this way experiences God's approval. 
They're in with God. Some people translate this happy instead of blessed, which the, the word does have to do with the idea of happiness. But most of us experience happiness as something that just sort of comes upon us and then leaves us and we're not in control of that. So he's not simply saying, if you're poor in spirit, you feel happy. He's saying, if you're poor in spirit, congratulations, you can be happy. Because even though right now this might be costing you something, you are receiving God's approval. And it's more important to get God's reward than the temporary reward that society gives you now. Well, let's get into it. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Doesn't that sound like a great thing to be poor in spirit? You're like, this is what Jesus wants me to be like. It just sounds like he's saying, blessed are the depressed. Now, it's not what being poor in spirit means. It doesn't just mean blessed are the gloomy people walking around sad about life. But but it does have to do with the idea of poverty. He says, and he's not specifically saying blessed are those that don't have enough money. He's saying blessed are those who are poor in spirit. So think about it this way. Um, If you were really poor financially, you might look around and when you realize that you were poor financially, you might be brought to the point that you would be willing to ask for Anybody? Willing? Yeah. Willing to ask for money. Willing to ask for help. They'd get to the point that you'd say, I'm bankrupt. I'm desperate. I don't have enough. I am unable to handle this on my own. So I'm going to reach out and ask for help. In essence, Jesus is saying, blessed are those who recognize that spiritually they are bankrupt. So they ask for help. Some people historically, and this is something Martin Lloyd-Jones points out in his commentary, that some people have looked at the Sermon on the Mount as a whole and said, this is just a, a great sermon about morality. Everybody should follow it. I mean, it's got the golden rule in there that you should treat people the way that you want to be treated. It talks to us about judging. It talks to us about lust and anger and loving your enemies and, and all these wonderful things. Everybody should follow this. Jesus starts the Sermon on the Mount basically by saying, if that's your attitude, the first thing you need to realize is you can't. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who look at their own lives and realize they can't make it. They can't please God. They are spiritually bankrupt. We just spent four weeks on this series called What is the Gospel? And core to what we were talking about in this whole series was the idea that the message, the Christian message, the message of Jesus is not, we will give you the rules so that you can get to God. The Christian message is God did something and because of what he did, you can become his child. And you can't get there unless you're poor in spirit. Jesus starts not only the Beatitudes, but the entire Sermon on the Mount by saying the person that is acting in line with what's important to Jesus is a person that recognizes that they are spiritually broken and deeply in need. And he goes on with this happy list. He says in verse 4, blessed are those who mourn. So it just keeps getting better. If you're poor in spirit, you're internally uncomfortable. You're like, I don't don't really like it. I'm I'm not very pleased with myself. I'm frustrated that that I'm sinful. I'm frustrated that I'm broken. And then he says, oh, on top of that, blessed are those who mourn. I don't know about you, but anytime I experience grief, you know what I want to happen as soon as possible? It to be done with. Just anyway, what is the quickest way to be done with this grief, to be done with this mourning? I don't like mourning. I don't like the discomfort of that. But Jesus says, no, there's something good about this. And it's not that the idea of grief in and of itself is a good thing, but there's a proper place for grief. And those who are following the lead of Jesus will find themselves 
morning. In fact, Jesus was referred to, amongst many other things, he was referred to as a man of sorrows. And that's not because Jesus just had a depressed personality. That's because Jesus looked at the brokenness and the sin in the world and it caused him grief. If you are looking at the world and you don't find yourself touched in your spirit by the fact that there's so much sin and brokenness and injustice in the world, you may not be in tune with what's important to Jesus. Jesus says, the people following my lead, they find themselves mourning over their own sin, over the sin in the world. They find themselves, in fact, this goes all the way back to the book of Isaiah in chapter 5, where there's a statement about people in the culture calling good evil and calling evil good, which is something that some of us resonate with in our world right now, where we say that there are things that are, be, that are being celebrated that we should be grieved about. In fact, I'll give you an example, because this happened with me um, uh, about six months ago. There was one of, the, one of these rare times where there was a story in our culture that brought together like the two biggest hot-button topics in our culture. It brought together immigration and abortion. That's an accomplishment right there. And so the, the reason this happened, this was in Texas, and there was a gal, a 17-year-old gal, who'd come into the country illegally, and she was pregnant. Um, and she was about 15 or 16 weeks pregnant, And in Texas, they don't allow abortions after 20 weeks, but she'd come into the country and she wanted to have an abortion. But because she was in the country illegally, she was being held in custody by by the federal government. Um, And and also because she was underage, there were parental consent issues that that are part of Texas law. And so there ended up being this legal battle where, where a bunch of people came forward and said, the government needs to let her go because she has a right to go and abort her baby. And then other people were saying, no, she doesn't because she's in the country illegally and because, you know, we we have certain consent laws and we haven't been able to reach her parents. And the the case went back and forth. And finally, those advocating for her, her release won. She was able to be released She went and she had the abortion. And after she had the abortion, do you know what the advocates did? They celebrated. They literally cheered the death of a baby, the killing of a baby. If you are in tune with Jesus, you'll find yourself mourning things that our culture celebrates. Jesus says, blessed are those who mourn, but good good news, they'll be comforted. And even when you hear that, who do you think is going to comfort them? God himself will comfort them. This world won't comfort them. In fact, it may say you're really judgmental to be mourning over that. Jesus himself will comfort them. One more, and this is where I'm, I'm, I'm going to go out of order, which might freak some of you out. We're going to cover them all. But, but in verse 6, the fourth beatitude, because it goes along with this theme, says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. And, and once again, we talked about right, with mourning, at least for, for me and I think for most of us, if you're in grief, you want it to be done as soon as possible. If you're hungry, what do you immediately try to do? If you're thirsty, what do you immediately try to do? Drink. Some of you are like, finish up because there's food out there, I've heard. This is an uncomfortable, just, just physically, it's uncomfortable to be hungry and thirsty, just as it's uncomfortable to, to mourn and to grieve. And Jesus is saying, blessed are those who are not complacent. Blessed are those who are hungering and thirsty, who are internally uncomfortable because of their own lack of righteousness and because of the lack of justice in this world. This, this is a hard saying. Jesus right away says, you're going to have to choose between two kingdoms because if you're going to follow me, if you're going to treat as important the things that I believe are important, you're going to be internally uncomfortable. 
You're going to find yourself frustrated with yourself, saying, I, I should be further along, and I'm frustrated, and I realize my desperation for God, and it's not fun to feel desperate for, for anyone, and you're going to find yourself grieving, and you can say, I would be easier just to tune out of these things or, or close off my conscience to these, and, and you'll find yourself hungering and thirsting and, and discontent with where you're at and where the world is at. And Jesus says, those are the people that get the kingdom. Those are the people that get comforted. Those are the people that get filled. And just, just as a quick aside on this, there's another time that Jesus talks about people being filled. There's a point in the Gospel of John where he says, I am the bread of life. In essence, says, if you come to me, you'll be satisfied, you'll be filled. There's a lot of rewards promised in these beatitudes, you know, of comfort and mercy and that we'll be called children of God. All of these promises are tied in with the fact, not that we're going to get something that God is going to give us from a distance. All of these promises are going to be tied into the fact that our greatest reward that we're going to receive is God himself. It's not just that you're going to be comforted. It's that you're going to be comforted by God. It's not just that you're going to be filled. It's going to be that God himself fills you. It says kingdom virtues lead to internal discomfort. But the other thing that they lead to is they lead to practical sacrifices. You will be called to make intentional choices that will defer pleasure now and will put you in situations where you're sacrificing things. And and so we'll go back. All right, the the third beatitude, the one that we skipped over for a moment in verse five says, blessed are the meek for they will inherit the earth. And meek is not a word we use all the time uh, in our culture, but meekness has to do with the idea of humility and gentleness A meek person is somebody who doesn't need the credit. A meek person is somebody that doesn't go after revenge. I just look for a second at what Jesus says. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. And I always want to say, where? The meek are not inheriting this earth. The meek do not get ahead in this world. The people that are in power, the people who are CEOs or politicians, the the people that have all the money, they are not the humble, gentle people. You you see a few sneak in there, but for the most part, they're the people who are braggadocious. They're the people who are willing to ensue corruption. They're the people that are willing to take down their opponents and their enemies and do things under the table. The meek don't inherit this earth, but Jesus says the meek will inherit the earth. The meek will inherit the kingdom. There's a promise of reward, but if you're going to be meek, if you're going to be humble, if you're not going to go for the credit, if you're going to be gentle with people, you will be taking a back seat now, almost always, and having hope in the future. Blessed are the meek. He also goes on and similarly says, blessed are the merciful, for they will receive mercy. Now, for your merciful, this is another sacrifice that you are choosing to make. What you're choosing to say when you exercise mercy is you're choosing to say, I won't make you pay for what you owe me. And that might mean literally that somebody owes you money and you say, I know I'm just going to be merciful. I'm not going to collect that debt. I'm not going to ask for that money back. Or it may mean that you don't collect the debt on a wrong that somebody has committed against you. And you just say, you know what? I'm going to let that go. I'm not going to rub that in their face. I'm not even going to bring it up. I'm, I'm going to display mercy. Mercy doesn't get you ahead in our culture. What gets you ahead in this culture is making sure you get exact recompense for everything that's owed you. But Jesus says, I'm announcing blessing to merciful people. And those are the people who will receive mercy. 
He goes on in verse 8. He says, blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. This, again, this just reinforces the idea that what Jesus is ultimately saying is better than any temporary reward, any money, any position that you could get through acting according to the virtues of the world today. You get God. You get closeness with God. You get to walk with him. You get to experience him leading you in your life. You will see God if you're pure in heart. And to be pure in heart goes beyond the idea that you just want to look pure to the people around you, that you just want to look like you have integrity. This is why later on in chapter 5, Jesus is going to say, all right, you've heard you're not supposed to murder, and if you haven't murdered, good job. But if you are harboring anger and malice in your heart, you might be pure on the outside, but you're not pure in heart. You've heard that you're not supposed to commit adultery, and if you haven't committed adultery, good job. But if you haven't dealt with the lust in your heart, you may be pure on the outside, but you're not pure in heart. This requires sacrifice. This requires us saying, I'm not just looking to look good to the people around me. I'm looking to follow the calling of Jesus and be changed from the inside out. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. And finally, the seventh beatitude is, blessed are the peacemakers, because they will be called children of God. And the reason they'll be called children of God is because God is the ultimate peacemaker. God the Father sent his son to make peace between God and man and between one another, as we talked about last week. Blessed are the peacemakers. Now, now here's what I want to say about this. Um, we would look at, at, at at least these last four that we've just gone over. All right, meekness, uh, mercy, uh, pure in heart, and peacemakers. And we'd say, all right, if you went out and surveyed people um, just, just the average person on the street, the, the person who's not a Christian, but the ad, average person on the street in our culture, they would hear all four of those things and say, yes, those are good things. Those are good things. It's good to be pure. Um, it, it's good to show mercy. It's, it's good to, uh, those are good things. At the same time, we got to look at those four things and say, these are four things that don't get you ahead. Being a peacemaker doesn't get you ahead. You know why? Because if you are a peacemaker, you are willingly entering into somebody else's mess whether it's a married couple or it's kind of a warring family situation or just two people in a fight, you are willingly entering into their mess, which is going to make you uncomfortable and, and maybe it's going to cost you time and cost you focus because you are looking to broker peace in that situation. About 15 years ago, Karina and I moved into um, the, our second apartment that, uh, after we got married. And uh, the apartment complex quickly changed managers after we got in. It wasn't because of us. But... Um, <laughs> But the manager, the, the manager who was there for the first couple months that we were there, um, everybody loved her. She was just a really sweet lady. Everybody loved her. But one of the reasons why everybody loved her was the reason why she was fired, and that's because she let everybody get away with everything. So, so she was let go, and they hired on another lady, um, and she was sort of the opposite. She was, she was a prickly woman. She was probably in her, in her 60s and, and just kind of was a prickly, cantankerous woman, and she was going to lay down the law. And so she was not well-liked. And I was in her office one afternoon. Uh, I think I was, I was turning in the rent check or something. And I was, I was talking to her because I knew that people didn't like her. And so I was trying to be, show some kindness. And literally, while I was in there, another tenant, this lady, came over. And the two of them got into a shouting match. Which some of you are like, well, Dan, you get up in front of people. You don't mind conflict. Those of you who know me are laughing at that right now. Because you know how deeply uncomfortable 
I am with those situations. So I'm there in the offices there, shouting at each other. And this woman is saying, I need you to give me an extra key so that my son, when he comes home from school, can get in. And, and the apartment manager is saying, no, you don't get an extra key. These are the rules. And, and your son's not old enough. And they're going back and forth. And I decided to insert myself into the situation. <laughs> and really, th- th- this, was, this was partly through the, the, the God-led instinct to try to be a peacemaker. But it was also partly, if I'm going to be honest, because I have this deep arrogance that I can convince anybody of anything if I'm given five minutes with them. <laughs> so I'm, I'm very reasonable. I'm talking to this lady who's the tenant and saying, well, well, it sounds like your son's not old enough for the key. And it, it seems like she's just playing according to the rules. And then the lady kind of, we, we had a conversation back and forth a few times. And um, suddenly this lady who was the tenant just looked at me and she said, now wait, who are you? <laughs> and she wasn't, I wasn't like, I'm Dan, it's good to, it, it wasn't a polite, who are you? It was a, why are you involved with this? Who are you? And it did make me pause and think, why am I involved with this right now? Why did I willingly enter into this messy, uncomfortable situation? Here's the deal, if you're gonna be a peacemaker, Jesus says, blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are those who enter into messy situations because they so love peace that they're willing to set aside their own comfort in order to help bring harmony between other people. That's a sacrifice that you would make. Jesus says, if you're going to adopt these kingdom virtues, they're going to require you to defer gratification. They're going to require you to make sacrifices. And with with the last beatitude, there's one more thing. Jesus says, if you're going to adopt these virtues, it's going to lead to internal angst and internal discomfort. It's also going to lead to practical sacrifices. And finally, it's going to lead to external opposition. It's going to lead to you sometimes having enemies that you wouldn't have if you just went with the flow of the culture. So the last beatitude, verse 10, he says, blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And this is the only beatitude that Jesus expounds upon. So in verses 11 and 12, he says, blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Once again, take in just the craziness of what Jesus is saying here. He's saying, congratulations, you should be happy when people insult you, persecute you, and lie about you in slanderous ways. But he tells us in verse 12, Rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way, they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And most of us don't like it when we make enemies. Some of you are kind of warmongers and you're like, yeah, I kind of like the conflict. But most of, most of us are not. Most of us would, would much rather avoid conflict. We, we like other people to approve of us and like us. So Jesus is saying, if you follow me, if you treat me like the king, you're going to have enemies. And in some ways, you could look at this and say, but, but listen to what Jesus is saying. He's talking about mercy, and he's, he's talking about a, you know, peacemaking, and he's, he's talking about these different things. Why would that bring persecution? Why would that mean that I would have enemies? Well, we'll just pause to think about it. Didn't Jesus have enemies? Jesus is the one perfectly living out all of these things. He had enemies. He got crucified because of what he taught. And at the core, here's the reason. At the core, the reason why this brings us enemies is because anytime we put the gospel of Jesus Christ on display, by definition, that ends up convicting us of our sin. That ends up exposing our sin and calling out our sin. This is why we're poor in spirit. 
It's why it's appropriate for us to be poor in spirit because the gospel calls out and exposes our sin and we respond by saying, there but by the grace of God go I. The gospel calls out our sin. It calls out things like abortion and sexual immorality. It calls out gossip and lying and slander. It calls out lust and anger. It calls out all the backbiting that we have and the malice that we have in our hearts. It calls out all of these things. And when it calls out all of these things, this doesn't mean that we're these angry kind of street preachers going up to people that we know and talking to them very specifically about all the sins that we see in their lives. It just means that we're saying, here's the righteousness of God. Here's what Jesus did. And because of that, that instantly exposes us. And when we're exposed for our, uh, when our sin is exposed, we, we really have one of two moves. We can blame ourselves or we can blame the messenger. The poor in spirit are the ones who blame themselves. Who say, I'm in this mess because of me. I'm poor in spirit because of me. I've made all these choices. I I committed that loss. I committed that affair. I, I, I did all of these things. It's my fault that I'm in this situation. And my only hope is the grace of God. But the other and sometimes more appealing option is to blame the messenger. To say, now I feel crummy because of you. I feel bad because you're judging me you will have enemies. Even if you're not trying to, even if you're being as polite as you can possibly be, you will have enemies if you uphold the gospel of Jesus because by definition, it will judge people and expose their sin. And we're uncomfortable when our sin is exposed. But Jesus gives us the promise. He says, yeah, this is going to be uncomfortable now, but great is your reward in heaven. Great is your coming reward. You are sacrificing comfort now. You're looking forward to comfort in the future. And that goes along with with the whole theme of this, that Jesus is saying, you're going to have to choose. In fact, at the end of chapter 6, he says in a very literal way, you cannot serve two masters, you must choose. And from the Beatitudes, that's what he's saying from the very beginning. You're going to have to choose. If you're going to be meek, that means you're not going to get the credit now. If you're going to be merciful, that means you're not going to get paid back now. If you're going to hunger and thirst for righteousness, that means you're going to be uncomfortable right now instead of complacent. If you live for kingdom values right now, you will be taking a temporary hit in the present. But he says, but there's reward. And he says, God is a greater rewarder than any person here on this earth. And, and just as the kingdom of God, it's something that's here and it's something that's future. The reward is here and the reward is future. Because you could read the New Testament and say, well, there are rewards about having authority in heaven and there are rewards about crowns and rewards about mansions. There are rewards about all these wonderful things. But at the core, the reward for the person seeking God is that they get God. The reward for the person following Jesus is that they get Jesus. That's why he's saying theirs is the kingdom. They're the ones who see God. They're the ones called the children of God. Ultimately, the reward that we get is not something that we have to wait for eternity to get because when we follow these things that Jesus is talking about, we find that we're walking with Jesus. And when we're walking with Jesus, we're in step with Jesus. And when we're in step with Jesus, we're experiencing connection and fellowship with him. We get the reward now and the reward in the future. So let me just ask you this, thinking back about what we've talked about. Following Jesus, treating him like the king, makes us internally uncomfortable. So let's just ask ourselves, where are we complacent? Where have we said, I'd I'd rather feel nice and not have to delve into the negative feelings of of hungering and thirsting and, and mourning and being poor in spirit. I'd rather not deal with that. Where are we complacent? 
And if following Jesus and treating him like king leads to practical sacrifices, let's honestly look at our lives and say, well, where are those practical sacrifices? Where does that show up with my money? Where does that show up with how I extend forgiveness? Where where does that show up where I'm willing to enter into an uncomfortable situation and try to help people get along with each other? Where am I making those sacrifices? And if following Jesus and treating him like the king means that we end up making enemies, at the very least, we need to pause and say, where have I been unwilling to stand with Jesus because I know people will disapprove of me because of it? And the fact is, according to Jesus, they will disapprove of you. If you follow what Jesus talks about in the Beatitudes, you'll have people that at the very least will look at you and say, gosh, give yourself a break. You're being way too hard on yourself. I mean, just ease up. Nobody's perfect. If you're following Jesus and treating him like the king, you're going to have other people that are going to say, you're never going to get ahead by doing that. They don't deserve for you to treat them that way. They deserve whatever's coming to them. They don't deserve your mercy. They don't deserve peacemaking. They don't deserve any of that. And they might even be right about that. That's what people will say. And then people will also sometimes get aggressive with you and say you're a bigot, you're judgmental, you're small-minded, you're, you're archaic, you're regressive, you will end up in situations where people around you disapprove of you because of how different that you're living. But think about this for a moment. Even if everyone in the world ended up disapproving you, you know what Jesus is saying about you when you live this way? He's saying, blessed. Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much that you haven't left us to wander around and try to figure out what you're saying to us. And when you speak, um, you often surprise us because the things that you say are important are, are the things that we often disregard. And the things that you say that we should disregard are the things that we often think are really important. Father, I pray that you would shine your light through us in such a powerful way that we would live out the things that you say are most important. May this church be a place that when people come and are around us, that they say, Jesus is king here. When people are around us in our lives and around our families, that they would say, in this household, with this person, with this man, with this woman, Jesus is king. And God, please do a work in our hearts to help us to see that every sacrifice that we make is not an ultimate loss, but it's a gain when we get to be connected to you. Please help us to long for you more than we long for comfort in this world and shine your light to our community through the way that we live. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen.